You'll notice this morning that there are three sheets, five pages total uh, related to today's outline. We're not going to be preaching all of that. What? (laughs) We're going to cover the first page of the outline, but the other four sheets I have given you, um, it is a copy from a web page. And I provided it uh, not only because of the um, very uh, quality exposition, but also because uh, several quotes in this uh, are by Gleason L. Archer, who uh, is a professor excellence of the Old Testament. And um, he is... Uh, a very noted scholar and has uh, written a book called Hard Sayings of the Old Testament. And uh, one of those uh, touches on our question this morning. Now, I want to say a few words at the beginning. I'm kind of like... dare I say this, (laughs) kind of like the Apostle Paul in some respects, not in all, of course, but um, you remember he wrote one time, you uh, to the Corinthians, you say that he is so harsh when he's present, and then so gentle when he's away, you know, or maybe the opposite, I don't know, but anyway. Um, I have a tendency uh, when speaking the truth uh, to be a bit harsh. Uh, I recognize that. It's because I have a fervent passion for the Word of God and because I want to speak the truth with authority and with the power that God gives and uh, and with the... Um, Clarity that God gives. However, the scripture says that Jesus was full of grace and truth. Not only truth, but grace. And this morning's subject is a difficult subject. We've been looking at how to find biblical answers to questions that we have and dealing with some of the moral issues of our day and the cultural issues of our day. And uh, this particular study is representative of some very difficult uh, moral and ethical studies because they're not always uh, declared clearly by a particular verse of Scripture, but they actually require some study. Of Scripture to put together the implications and the pieces of information that are found scattered throughout the Word. This is one of those instances where you have to take a lot of Scripture and put it together in a logical fashion in order to come to the truth. But before we get into the question of is elective termination of pregnancy morally wrong, which is the same as induced abortion, uh, I want to say that although I don't know who you are, and I, and I want you to know that, I want everyone to know that, I don't know who I may be speaking to, 
at, at this moment. But statistically, there's probably one or more people here uh, who have had abortions. And as a consequence of that, you may uh, have been struggling with guilt, or you may be struggling as we go through the message. And I want you to know that God is a very gracious, tender, and loving God. There is literally nothing that he cannot forgive except the rejection of the offer of salvation by the Holy Spirit. That is the only unpardonable sin is to reject the offer of forgiveness and salvation through the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, all other sin is forgivable. And Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5 that where there is no law, sin is not imputed. But when the law came, sin abounded. And that's an important concept because if you don't know a thing is wrong, um, then it's, it's difficult to come to terms with that before the Lord. And if down the road you come to see that it was wrong, God's forgiveness is wide open and his arms are open. He, he is not a harsh God that will be angry with you forever. <laughs> That's the scriptural teaching that he is loving and gracious and quick to forgive. You remember perhaps the woman who was taken uh, in the act of adultery. Um, I've always marveled at that passage because it was a setup. And I noticed that they didn't bring the man before the Lord that was part of that uh, sin um, because he was probably one of them. And he agreed to participate in a setup. How else would they find out in the very moment? And as they brought her before Jesus, uh, seeking to trap him in the law of Moses, which said she should be stoned to death, Jesus ignored them for a bit. And then he stood and he said, Whichever one of you has never sinned, you cast the first stone. And one by one, they dropped their stones and walked away. Because no one could lay that claim. And Jesus, again, said to the woman who was now lying alone at his feet, save for perhaps the disciples, he said, where are your accusers? And she said, there are none. And he said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And so I, I want you to hang in there with us this morning and listen through the exposition and understand that if this applies to you, God's grace superabounds even more, and there is healing in your wings, O oh Lord. There's healing 
in your wings. Carrie, did you have a word you wanted to say about God's grace? Yeah, so uh, actually I'm just going to quote a scripture verse which I believe is true. And when you, think about, when you think about the Ten Commandments, here's the crazy part, right? We focus in on specific things. And, and what we really are doing is we like to point fingers. And, um, and we don't recognize all the time. And, and here's, this, is a difficult, this is a difficult prayer to ask. Because it's one where we're asking the Lord to actually unveil, not the hearts of others all the time, but to unveil our own heart. And the reality of it is, Jesus actually said, one of my favorite stories in the scripture is when, um, when he was having a meal together with the Pharisees, and this woman who was an exceedingly great sinner, not recognizing that everyone sitting around the table with him, we're all going to die because of their sin as well, Right? And she actually risks everything and goes into that dwelling place and uh, to seek out Jesus because she recognized that there was healing nowhere else but in him. And Jesus tells that story that he who has been forgiven much loves much. So here's the deal is that somewhere along the lines, the Holy Spirit has to lead us into the truth that sin is sin and that we all fall in, into these areas. And we are significantly guilty of things. And, and, and we're not always recognizing that. Our, our soul um, uh, is very deceitful. And I'm just going to quote the scripture verse, which is, which is a trumpet command. So I believe that proclamation is, is actually, we're just like instruments and that the Spirit is proclaiming through us. This is out of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 13, verses 38 and 39. This is absolutely, stunningly, amazingly a mountain of truth to all mankind, regardless of where you live, what time you lived, what language you speak, what era that you were born into. And here's what it says. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and through Him, everyone who believes is free from all things. How many things? All things. So, so therein is the peace is that if we really have the truth coming into us, it's not us yelling at the world about how terrible the world is, right? It's about us understanding ourselves and the freedom of which that only comes in Christ. And then that freedom, that knowledge of that freedom actually reciprocating back. The phenomenal part is it's the love of God through the Spirit of God. It's actually the very Spirit of Christ's love for us, reflecting to the Father and then out to the world, saying, we are free. Come to the freedom that is only found in Christ. It's not about holding up signs. It's not about picking specific issues and then bringing condemnation. It's about proclaiming freedom and life to people. That's really critical to understand. That's the role and the responsibility of the church. In fact, in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 10, there's this phenomenal passage, and we're so bad at this, but it says, it's not up to us who's going up and who's going down. We don't make those determinations. And yet in the church, we do this all the time. We judge one another, and we judge the world, and then we talk about how bad the world is, and yet they're, they're not even enlightened. Like they haven't even come to the knowledge of the truth yet. So I say that if we have the knowledge of the truth, then we of all people should be like the woman that met with Jesus. He who has been forgiven much loves much. The world needs love, not condemnation. He came to save it. 
not to condemn it. And as a church, we should be that way too. So when we talk about this, there it is. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, whose love never fails and who never gives up. I'm not going to spend a lot of time this morning on Roman numerals 1, 2, and uh, 3, which Carrie is going to share with us. But um, I I just want to look at some of the facts, uh, both medical and legal, as well as frequent reasons that are given for abortion, and uh, which is the same as elective termination. If you make a decision to terminate a pregnancy in one way or another, that is abortion. And the question is, is it morally wrong? And I've just given you six of the more common reasons. Uh, Health risk to the mother. That is not the most common reason, but it is a reason. And I want to just simply say here, when that is the question the health risk uh, to the mother of the pregnancy uh, for whatever reason. There are really two patients. There's not one patient. There are two patients. There are two people involved. One of them is the baby, and one of them is the mother. And uh, in, in a sense, it's imperative for the survival of the baby that the mother survive. And so in terms of triage, you look at whom can I save and, and who needs to wait for care. And the Bible does not address this, and it was not even possible in biblical days um, to perform surgery and things like that. And so as a consequence... Um, that's a question that we cannot answer directly from the Scripture, but we can say that there are two patients here in triage, one of whom has to be given priority in order for the other to survive. And as a, as a result of that, perhaps it's not so much elective as it is you do your best for both, but you emphasize the life of the mother, and um, God is in the midst of those things. He, he understands that. A risk of genetic health problems with the baby. All I can say there is you have no idea how life is going to turn out, but children, even with genetic problems, often um, bring great blessing. Uh, cases of rape or incest, uh, including date rape, which may uh, be a, a, an unwilling uh, woman in a situation that she cannot extract herself from easily. I am not embarrassed to tell you that I am the conception product of date rape. And my mother explained to me, my birth mother explained to me that she went on a date with an airman uh, back in 1952, uh, and he forced himself on her, and she became pregnant. That was 20 years before Roe versus Wade, but she said I wouldn't have made any different choice. Um, she carried me to term, and then after... 
a while realized that she had overwhelmed herself and uh, placed me for adoption. And I will tell you that the scripture, when God called me to preach, said, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. That God's hand was on my life from conception. And even though you cannot justify the act, My life had nothing to do with that act. And God's grace and mercy was prevalent in my life. And I'm glad I'm here today. Um, I hope you are too, but But I'm glad I am. And uh, that's often one of the reasons given. And and I realize it's trauma, trauma, trauma for months. Uh, And it's not... It's not pleasant by any means, but you do not know what a blessing the child will be. Economic hardship is often a reason given. I just can't afford a baby right now. The age of the mother, she's either too young or she's too old. Um, But again, children born late in life can be a great blessing, and children born early... In life, even if adoption is the best solution, there is a solution that preserves the life of the child. Or pressure from a partner. We often say that abortion is a woman's choice, and ultimately, in one sense, it is. But many women get pressure from their significant other. And uh, whatever the participation of that person in the decision, uh, he shares, takes two to tango, you know. He shares the responsibility and he shares the guilt of the outcome. I've listed various types of induced abortion. I'm going to suggest you just look those up. I don't want to get sidetracked on those right now because uh, they can lead us down a very dark path and uh, I don't know that it's beneficial to answering the question what does the Bible uh, have to say but when we talk about uh, abortion we're talking about taking the life potentially of a human being and and Carrie could you explain to us some of the types of homicide so before I do that I'm going to I'm going to lay out some statistics. So the state of Illinois, specifically, I'm not even going to go full United States. Uh, the state has to publish a report on uh, abortions every year. I don't know if you guys know that or not. The latest report was published in December of 2017 for uh, the calendar year 2016. So in the, state of the, in the state of Illinois, reported abortions in the state of Illinois for 2016, 38,382. That's 105 babies per day during the year. Uh, Averaged out, that's five abortions per hour in the state of Illinois alone. How many in McHenry County? Anyone want to wager a guess? 360. That's only, in our county alone, almost one baby per day. Um, And there's many different reasons. Illinois maintains some some of the nation's strongest laws protecting unborn victims. Did you know that? That in the state of Illinois, we have some of the strongest laws 
protecting unborn victims of criminal violence. Um, under Illinois criminal law, the killing of an unborn child at any stage of gestation is defined as a form of homicide in Illinois. If you damage a baby, it's criminal homicide to actually hurt that baby. Illinois has one of the strongest laws about this. Okay, So we have some definitions. I'm not going to read them all on there. First degree, um, deliberate killing of a human being with premeditated planned intent. Second degree, intentionally killing a human being without premeditation. We have manslaughter, involuntary manslaughter, and justifiable homicide. In the United States Code, right there on your study guide, you can see this. The unborn victims of violent acts allows for a fetus to be treated as a victim in the crimes. And I've already said in the state of Illinois, that's actually reinforced. However, in subsection C of our federal code, that same statute specifically prohibits prosecutions related to consented abortions and medical treatments. And it's likewise the same way in the state of Illinois. So although we have some of the strongest um, political positions in the state of Illinois for protecting unborn victims of criminal violence, it provides scant protections for women considering or making an elective choice at this point in time that this is not the right time, so I'm going to terminate the pregnancy. Um, and if I could interrupt you there, it's interesting that when you put those two together, the only difference between the homicidal victim, a baby who is killed through manslaughter or murder or whatever, the only difference between that baby and one who is electively terminated is simply the process. It has nothing to do with the age, has nothing to do with the uh, number of weeks or months of gestation. It's purely a difference between whether I wanted it dead or I wanted it born alive. So herein is the piece, and when we get at the center, remember what we're really after here is approved workmen are not ashamed, right? Some of these, some of these topics that our culture is dealing with are very challenging topics, and there's not a specific scripture verse all the time that says, thou shalt this, or this is the will of the Lord, this. It's an application. It's, it's actually being a good student of the scriptures and understanding. We have some questions here for the sake of time. Um, I'm just going to leave them for you to actually answer them, and I'm going to go right to the last one, and I'm, I'm going to ask. So some of this has to do with um, uh, what's the key question here for Bible-believing believers. You know, what do you believe about life? That's what we really want to get at, right? It's not, it's not so much about the act. It's not so much about what we legislate, because you can't legislate illumination. You can't legislate regeneration. Wouldn't that be cool if you could? I always ask the Lord, I'm like, can't you just give me like a magical Bible where I can just go up and just like hit people in the head or whatever, and then like they would understand the truth? But there's nothing like that there. Um, so we take truth and we ingest it, and we prayerfully seek out his heart. What is this? Who are you? Are you Elohim? Are you the creator of life? Did you start life spinning and then just depart? Are you, are you far away from all of this right now and we're just in a state of chaos? Or are you in control? Like it says in Psalm 139, was he involved in the creation of my daughter's form in the womb? 
Does he have a purpose? Where is he at? And where are we at as believers? So, Paul, what does the Bible, does the Bible have anything to say about the topic of abortion? Well, actually, you'll never find the word abortion in the Bible. Um, It's a word that we have coined, and it's not one that's used in Scripture. However, there is a word that is used in Scripture, uh, miscarriage, and um, that has its typical meaning. But one of the verses that pro-choice individuals often quote is Exodus twenty one twenty two, and I and I want to read this passage for you. If men struggle with each other and strike a woman with child, so that she gives birth prematurely. Now let me just stop there a minute. Do you see what's going on here? Two guys are fighting, and the woman gets struck. How does that happen? Well, how do you think it happens? You got husband fighting with somebody else and she gets in the middle to try to break it up that happens all the time and uh the scripture says she uh she is struck so that she gives birth prematurely yet there's no injury he shall surely be fined as the woman's husband may demand of him and he shall pay as the judges defined, decide. But if there is any further injury, then you shall appoint as a penalty life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, uh, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Or the Lex Talionis is the, uh, uh, I think it's Taoth says. But anyway. Here's the interesting point. How many of your Bibles say she is struck so that she miscarries? Does anyone have a Bible that's translated that way? Ah, you all have newer translations. Good for you. Um, The word that was translated miscarriage, which the 1995 edition of the New American Standard Bible corrects, says, so that she gives birth prematurely. This does not presuppose a stillbirth or a miscarriage. In fact, the Hebrew word is a combination of a noun and a verb to uh, bring the child forth. Or to cause to go out. So in other words, the woman is struck and she actually gives birth prematurely. But as you study all the uses of this word, if it means miscarriage, this is the only verse in Scripture where this word means that term. But if you interpret it as to cause to give birth or to cause to go out, then this verse is in alignment with all the other uses of the Hebrew word. And it literally means that the woman is struck and gives birth prematurely. If you read the passage in such a way that she is caused to miscarriage, it looks like only a fine is prescribed. So the baby does not have as much worth or value as a, as a born uh, person. 
But the reality is, is that she gives premature birth to a living child. And a fine is prescribed in order to allow some compensation for the care and nurture and and everything that's involved in that. There's no difference between now and then. Premature babies needed premature care. They may not have had neonatal intensive care units, but they still needed extra care. But if the baby is killed, it's an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, life for life, because the perpetrator is guilty of murder, just as if he had killed the mother. And so this verse, rather than being a pro-choice excuse, is in fact a pro-life demand that care be given to the child if he's born alive, then there's a fine. If she is born prematurely and dies, then it's the same guilt as if the person had killed the mother. That's what those extra four pages you have are all about. And uh, I encourage you to read those when you have time. I just gave you the uh, one-paragraph synopsis. But uh, there's plenty of reading that you can do on that particular uh, subject. Um, Let's talk about three views regarding the origin of the soul. So there's basically two views. I like this one. Uh, This is point uh, 4A. Two views regarding the non-material human part of human beings, okay? And one idea is, and by the way, these are debated among theologians, that human beings actually have three parts or they have two parts. Have you heard that before? So we're, we're kind of like, we're kind of made up of a trinity of us. What would be the trinity? Body, soul, and spirit. So for those people that believe that we have three parts, which I think that's kind of cool, by the way. It's sort, of, it's sort of in his image, right? Like in his image. There's something about it that like is harmonic in my heart. About It, it smacks of something that our amazing creator God would do. Anyways, uh, one of the supporting verses is out of 1 Thessalonians, where Paul actually says, May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, um, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Another thought is that the soul and spirit of the human being is actually one, and that we actually only have two parts. Um, Either way, while it's important to our understanding about the human nature, either view actually is applicable when we're talking about, well, when do we really become a person? When when does life begin? That's the big question, right? And we're going to... People are going to debate this even beyond us, but we want to use the scriptures and say, all right, well, let's try and build a formulation on this. You probably have already, but we're going to look at it anyways. So it's important about when does, whether we're three parts or two parts, doesn't really matter, right? When does life begin? So, of course, you're not going to debate it any further after today because we're going to give you the answers, right? (laughs) (laughs) You're going to... You're going to have the final solution. You don't have to discuss this anymore. It'll be uh, in its final form. 
no, there are three ma- basic uh, ideas concerning the origin of the soul. And isn't this really, there's a question up above, uh, what is the key question uh, regarding abortion? Isn't this really the key question? When does that developing embryo or fetus become a human being? And, you know, uh, you know your reproductive physiology enough to know that the uh, egg is fertilized in the fallopian tubes, and then it travels down the fallopian tube into the uterus where it implants upon the uterine wall and begins to develop the placenta and the child begins to, to grow. And that fertilization which occurs in the fallopian tube is uh, when the sperm penetrates the egg and the division begins to occur that starts to form the developing fetus. And so the question is, at what point between that moment and the time that pregnancy is recognized and the um, growing embryo has been successfully implanted in the uterine wall, at what time does it turn into uh, a person and stop being just a blob of human flesh and DNA. And one of the theories is a soul bank theory that God created all souls at one time. In other words, when He made Adam and made Eve, He made a bunch of boys and girls. And uh, they're little babies, and they're up there in the clouds somewhere. And uh, as the fetus begins to develop at the appropriate time God deposits the soul into the womb of the mother and unites it with the the embryo or the fetus that is developing Uh, there's a problem with that idea the first part of the problem is that human beings turn into a company, not a race. Now, what do I mean by that? A company is some, some beings that God created individually one by one. He made all of them singly. A race is a group that procreates itself based upon its reproductive ability. So whether that's, um, I mean, you don't have a race of horses. We have horse races, but that's a little different thing than a race of horses. But the concept is that uh, horses begat horses. Or if you mix them uh, with donkeys, they get mules. But anyway, they're, they're not reproductive. So anyhow, the idea is that a race procreates itself after its kind. What's another possibility? Another one is that during the development of the child, that the Lord actually at some point during um, the creative process of the child's growth in the womb, that then the Lord engages and creates the soul inside of the baby at some point during the pregnancy and development of the child. So that's the second bullet. 
Um, the, there's some problems with that as well, right? So if the Lord is actually creating souls, and this is actually a biblical ethical problem, okay? If he's creating a soul after the formation of the body of the child through the cellular makeup, I, I know this about my God. He doesn't make anything stuff except for less than perfect. This is part of the problem with the chaotic earth in, in forever and ever and ever. Does that make any sense? Does that smell at all like our God? And so would he create souls along the development of the child that actually have a sin proclivity to sin nature in them? It doesn't take long after a baby is born to realize that the child has got some problems. It's got some selfish issues. You know, that they're not selfless, right? I mean, don't get me wrong. Um, they are helpless in many ways, are completely dependent. That's a story, too, by the way, for us to get, right? You understand that? That, the, that even the way that, that babies come into the world and how we care for them is a story about ourselves, about the adults that are having them. Uh, anyway, so does God create a soul in the development of the child? Does it happen in the second trimester? You know, does it happen when the child starts sucking their thumb? You know, when does that happen when God actually creates the soul? And if he does, is he creating a soul that's broken? And uh, that's a problem because I don't think when God makes anything that he makes anything that's less than perfect. Okay. So Genesis 1, 24 to 31 says that God on the sixth day made everything to um, develop and give birth after its kind. So, uh, going back to horses, horses beget horses, monkeys beget monkeys, giraffes beget giraffes, um, chickens beget chickens, and the chicken came before the egg, by the way. Uh, and That's so, the right answer. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, the idea is that um, each kind of living creature reproduces after its own kind. And when you come to human beings, the same is true. The difference is we're made in the image of God. We bear His image and His likeness. And as Carrie alluded, we have the tripartite Trinitarian nature, body, soul, and spirit, and it's that spiritual aliveness that separates us from the animals. It's not the soul that separates us from the animals. Mind, will, and emotions. Uh, how many of you have watched animals learn? Have you seen animals have emotion? Um, have you seen them make choices? Sure they do. Uh, we had a dog that would tear things up and eat the uh, woodwork every time we left the house uh, because he was mad with us. And uh, that's purely emotional, you know, and, and made a choice. Oh, there's a door frame. I'm going to latch on to it. They're going to be really upset when they get back because they left me. And uh, so they make those kinds of choices. It's not the soulish difference per se, although ours is the highest of all variety. Uh, I haven't seen any animals yet build a skyscraper, okay, or a bridge. We do that. 
we have God's creativity, but we're made in His image with a, a, a spiritual nature. And when we reproduce, if we don't get souls from a soul bank, and we don't, and we don't get souls because God made a broken one to put in us, and we don't, then the only way we can get a soul is from our parents. And if you study very carefully in, in the birth of Jesus, the Holy Spirit placed within the womb of Mary a, a whole human being who became the man part of the Christ child. It was not half Mary, half Holy Spirit. That's just weird. Um, he placed within Mary's womb a whole human being in order for Jesus to be sinless and the second Adam. That was essential. And so when we procreate, we give the whole human being to the developing fetus. When does that fetus become a whole person? I submit to you when the egg divides the first time at fertilization. That's the beginning of a human being. And the termination of that at any point is the death of a person. You can't get around that. And so there's only, that's the only biblical answer you can give for that reason. So is the termination, elective termination of a pregnancy morally wrong? And the answer is yes. It is morally wrong because in one form or another it is the murder of the developing fetus or developing embryo. I really like to say the developing person because it is a whole person. Now, I want to conclude by saying, well, first of all, let me say that even if the law permits it, that does not make it right. There are a lot of things that the law permits that does not make it right. There are some things the law prohibits that does not make them wrong if you violate it. But that's a little more difficult to justify because the scripture says, obey the authorities over you. And, and so you have a different uh, principle applying when you disobey but we have a choice, and the fact that this uh, subsection of the ruling of the court gives us a choice, starting with Roe v. Wade and going to the 2004 uh, declaration, does not mean to exercise that choice is appropriate. Before God, we have a moral duty and responsibility. And ultimately, friends, uh, men and women, we have to give it to God. We have to put it in His hands. 
we have to pray through these decisions as we do all decisions and trust God with the outcome. Um, And I want to say again in conclusion, if this morning this message has made you sad, uh, not in general terms, but in your particular terms, I want you to know that there is a loving God who is full of grace and mercy and that He is the one who looks at the woman lying at His feet and says, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And if you find yourself guilty and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, as Carrie reminded us at the beginning, there is freedom in the Lord. He has released you from the penalty. You do not need to carry that burden. Whatever it is, you can give it to Jesus. Sometimes we take guilt upon ourselves when God has already made a way of escape. And we have all sinned in many ways and in many acts of disobedience. It is the grace of God that brings forgiveness. And, um, I, you know, I just want to say to you this morning, uh, I, I may be harsh <laughs> sometimes in my um, statements in my zeal for the Scripture. But if you come talk to me in my office, you're going to find compassion and gentleness and grace because that's what my Lord offers. The love of God is what is offered. And I want you to know that His love prevails in all our sin. And there's no greater sin in abortion than there is in any other kind of sin. It has perhaps greater consequence, but before a holy God, sin is sin, and forgiveness is forgiveness, and the cross is effective. And so, Lay your burden on God and let him carry it. Thank you, Father, for your word. And I pray that many of us here this morning would agree that abortion is wrong, but we could not say why. I pray this morning that we would be able to say why now and give a biblical explanation For the value of human life. Because we are made in your image. It's in Jesus name that we pray. Amen.